0: This is Bloomberg Business of Sports.
1: Sports is business. And whenever you are procuring talent, you must start with a criteria. Being owners
2: of this league and wanting our league to be the best in the world, how do we make it better? The
3: valuations are getting so high, the list of people who could purchase a team is getting really short.
0: We have eight strategic investment areas when you look at the world of sports. The
4: NBA's already in 210 countries around the world.
2: NFL is an amazing thing for the sports betting industry.
4: We have the World Cup coming in 2026 to North America.
0: Hey, if I get a million dollars we're going to a school, Trust me, I'll be there. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu, And I'm Damian
4: Sassauer. Michael
2: Barr will join us later in the program. Coming up, we'll talk college football with the former head coach of Coastal Carolina and former TD Ameritrade chairman, Joe Moglia.
4: This is a matter of money. The conferences do their own TV negotiations. They're responsible for their own revenues. They don't need the answer to them. And plus, if you go back two and a half years or so, when they were announcing NIL, to me, that's the most significant thing to happen in the history of college sports. The NCAA literally abdicated their responsibility.
5: We'll also talk sports memorabilia
1: and a baseball card that sold for over
5: $7
4: million.
1: The rookie cards are always going to be among the most desirable. I mean, people like to see the the early first collectible for a player. That's what drew people to the Babe Ruth card. All
2: that coming up on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, Damien, we could see the very first billion dollar NBA star. That's right, Scarlett. There's been plenty of guys who have earned a lot of money. But San Antonio
5: Spurs rookie star Victor Webanyama has a chance to become the first player to earn over a billion solely from his NBA earnings.
2: Remember, that is not including endorsements and other deals. So, to take us through the numbers, we welcome back our friend of the show, Bloomberg U.S. sports business reporter Randall Williams, whose story on this is featured as a Bloomberg Big Take. Randall, great to see you again.
3: Yes, happy New new Year to you both.
2: So tell us a little bit more about this rookie sensation. He's a French basketball player, right?
3: Yes, he is. He's from Paris. He stands seven foot four inches tall. He is the tallest person I've ever stood next to. <laughs> he's a ridiculous specimen.
5: And he's got game, man. I mean, he's got game at the outside, which is unprecedented, right? I mean, seven foot four. I mean, granted the Spurs record, something to be desired this year at Randall, as you know, but I mean, walk our audience through the contract's this young gentleman will need to sign to get to that $1 billion threshold?
3: Sure. So I think it's it's pretty much guaranteed. As, you know, as long as he doesn't get in trouble or, or, or God forbid, a, a catastrophic injury happens, he's going to get a rookie extension. We've seen the precedent set by someone like Zion Williamson, who got injured early on in his career, but the Pelicans still gave him a contract. The same can be said for Joel Embiid. That contract is definitely going to be over $300 million. So right. he's, he's going to have $300 million. By the age of 28, well,
5: so I'll what, say. Is that $300 million over like five years, right? I yes. It, right, right. Yes,
3: it'll be a, a rookie extension deal, the same thing that Tyrese Halliburton just signed. And the reason that these this money keeps going up is because the media contracts are going to continue to grow. As yep. we all know, the NBA is about to start media negotiations. They're looking to add a couple new partners. And the range of the media deal is going to be between 70 and $80 billion, which means it's going to bring the cap up again. Now, Mark Cuban has said he's worried about the media deal after that. But who knows where it ends right, up right. as long as things continue to grow. And if they keep bringing in international stars, then the media business will grow. And so the Supermax after that will be over $500 million. So
5: that'll be in what year, approximately? I think 2030, early 2030s, probably. Yes. yes. Okay. So 2031, 2032, 500 million men on top of the 300 plus million. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're almost there because he could do a second Supermax.
3: Yes, yes. And Steph Curry has a second Supermax. I want to say his is around 228 or something like that. But that would be in
5: what year? That would be in, like, 2036
3: or 2037. Wow. And so the crazy thing about it, if, if... these are Bloomberg estimates. These are not what the NBA or NBPA mm-hmm. said. Right. If the cap continues to rise at its current rate, that number would be a five year, $760, <laughs> $760 million. I, crush a billion dollars in that. Right, I mean, it's, exactly. It's crazy. So
2: he would be the first player to reach that level but certainly not the last because it just opens the door up to others doing the same. What is it about Wemby as his friends referred to him as that makes him so special, that makes him so distinctive?
3: When you look at someone like Kevin Durant, for example, Kevin Durant ever Everyone says when he misses a shot, it's just because he made a mistake. It's not because your defense did anything. Well, imagine Kevin Durant five inches taller. And with the, I I don't think they're on the same level skill yet, but Mm -hmm. they have similar characteristics. At the same time, Wemby's wingspan is eight foot. He leads the NBA in blocks right now. So if he's leading the NBA in blocks right now, Imagine what he's going to be doing at 25 or 26. And that's what the Spurs are betting on. Sure, like the the Spurs are not very good this year, but they're not betting on being a championship squad. I mean, LeBron is a once-in-generation prospect where he came in and changed the course of every franchise he's touched. No one came in and said that was going to be the case with Wemby. They just said, look at this guy. He's an alien. And I think when you are as big and as long as he is, that the Spurs are going to want to pay him a lot of money and keep him San Antonio for at least the next couple decades.
5: So, Randall, let's compare this. Let's compare this to, for example, baseball. Sure. Shohei Otani, 10 years, $700 million, right? Yep. I mean, now Shohei's Very little like, of that up front, of course. And he's not 20 years old, let's be let's be yeah. clear, exactly. right? So, right? I mean, we're talking Wemby's 20 years old now, so he's going to have more time to kind of get to that $1 billion threshold. But, I mean, walk me through, is there any sport other than basketball in your mind that can get a player to $1 billion in earnings on the field or court, for that matter?
3: Baseball can do it, and the NFL can do it as well, but it's going to take longer for the NFL. I mean, you look at Mahomes' contract, it's $450 million, but even, even, you know, let's set Mahomes aside. Let's use Lamar Jackson. Okay. Lamar Jackson, I believe, is 27 years old. He's going to get another two hundred fifty million dollars okay. after this. Maybe more, probably more than that, but I think it's going to be two hundred fifty million. When he's thirty five, if he's still playing at the same level, right. he could get more money. And it all depends on how does the business of sports grow in the next ten years. Right. The TV media deals, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the big three all have a chance to do it. Baseball being the most likely upfront just because there's no salary cap. If you have another generational prospect come through, let's say they play for the Yankees. You mean (laughs) to tell me the Yankees would not write a a 12-year, billion-dollar contract? They're just waiting to. Exactly. So, the
2: thing with, of course, the NBA is that your playing career is longer, too, than in the uh, NFL or, to some extent, the MLB if you're throwing really hard.
3: If, if If you survive that long, I'll say. And the beauty of an NBA contract is that, A, it's fully guaranteed, and B, they are shorter. So in NFL contracts you can have four, five, six, and sometimes you can have ten year deals. But an NBA max is five. So if you make it past your rookie extension and you enter the league like Wemby at nineteen years old, you finish your you finish your first contract at twenty three, now you're guaranteed three hundred if you meet mm-hmm. the proper qualifications to get that three hundred million dollars. And all you have to do is be first team all defense. And I just said he's leading the NBA in block. So he has an eight-foot wingspan. He's leading the NBA in blocks at 19 years old. If he continues to do that, I mean, how can you not put the leader in blocks on the right. first team all-defense? I think that happens for many years to come.
5: Well, Randall, let's think about it this way, right? I'll give you another one. I mean, Michael Jordan, when he played, only made, what, $93 million, I think, something like that. Exactly. And, and that was years ago, right? But he made most of his money off the court, right? right? In endorsement deals with Nike and Haynes and whatever. What do you think, gross now, gross, Wemby's gonna make with you now. Lump in all of the off-court endorsement deals. You actually spoke to him, right? I mean, he's getting involved in some you know some different drink power. And I mean, talk to us a little bit about what his plans
3: are. I can say he's had over two dozen endorsement offers. He's gonna have accepted two for sure. Yeah, he's He's accepted accepted two. two. What are what are his and Barcode? Barcode is a plant-based drink uh, founded by Kyle Kuzman, a guy named Bark Malik, Mm -hmm. and. The 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 funny and crazy story about how they got connected is one of Barcodes' investors is from Paris, and so Bar, as they call him, was like, "Hey, you know, let's let's I want to try to connect with Wemby." When Bar flies over to Paris, he meets Wemby's mother, who is a massage therapist and I want to say a nutritionist. Okay. And so she looks at the drink and sees all these different ingredients, and is like, "I I like this," and Wemby liked it, and so he invested in a brand. I'm pretty sure he's going to have his own flavor coming out. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's very reminiscent of a Kobe and body armor thing. But again, Kobe did this way longer when he had six million dollars to invest in body armor. Wemby's doing this as a rookie right now, and we'll see how it grows.
5: Well, Randall, I got to ask you another question. You mentioned Paris. The Olympics are coming to Paris, right? And they're coming to Paris, France. I mean, Wemby is going to be in In the middle of it. Right in the middle of this. It's the
3: biggest basketball showcase this year's Olympics. Will be the biggest basketball showcase the world has ever seen. I
5: mean, Scarlett, you know, I was just in Paris over break and mm-hmm. I got to tell you, it was everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Olympics are going to be
2: huge
5: there. And it didn't even really occur to me that Wemby is going to be right there. He's going to be the focus of it all. It's going to yep. be amazing.
3: Yeah.
2: And I mean, the league is counting on him as an ambassador for 100%. the sport. Uh, you know, to the global audience in a deal where the NBA is going to be negotiating
5: new TV <laughs> rights, right? So it's kind of all lining up pretty perfectly, right, Randall?
3: For sure. And you, one of the things that happened when Wemby was drafted was Adam Silver met with Wemby before the draft. Adam Silver doesn't meet with any <laughs> number one pick, and he, he shakes your hand on stage, but having meetings with someone that generally doesn't happen. And right. so, they recognize the magnitude that he has, and really it's just using him as an example to other international prospects. It's like, hey, this is what can happen because the last five MVPs have all been international players. For instance, (laughs) if you look at Wemby, he just looks unlike anything we've ever seen. When you look at Joel Embiid, Joker, and Giannis, they all have a basketball player type of feel. When you look at Wemby, it's like, yeah, he looks like he should be playing basketball, yeah. but it's like, how did you get to be that tall in the first place? Is he the
2: <laughs> tallest Embiid player ever?
3: Ever? I'm no, not sure. Yeah, no, I
5: think Yao Ming was pretty... Well, Yao yeah, y- yeah, Ming yeah, was 7'6". Yeah. And okay. there's
3: nothing that anybody, once he gets to a level of like confidence and skill... I mean I don't know how you defend someone like that and that's what that's what where the media comes into like the NBA put 19 national games for the Spurs this year. That's more than the Brooklyn Nets. And we know how much bigger Brooklyn is than San Antonio. So they're betting on like, hey, here's this rookie. The team may not always play well, but just get a look at this tall guy. We know you want to watch him play. Right, exactly.
2: All right. Our thanks to Randall Williams, Bloomberg U.S. sports business reporter, for joining us. Make sure to check out his story and more from the Bloomberg Big Take on the Bloomberg Terminal and online at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. Up next, we talk big money sports collectibles with the president of Robert Edward Auctions. That is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu, here with Damian Sassauer. $7.2 million. That is how much a rare Babe Ruth rookie baseball card sold for in auction late last year. Yeah,
5: and according to ESPN, that is the third highest price ever for a baseball card.
2: Robert Edward Auctions made the sale, and we got a chance to talk with the president of that firm, Brian Dwyer, about the sale and more, along with our colleague, Michael Barr. Let's take a listen to that conversation.
1: The rookie cards are always going to be among the most desirable. I mean, people like to see the the early first collectible for a player. That's what drew people to the Babe Ruth card. That's what we see people gravitating to today with prospecting these up-and-coming players. There's a lot of different things to collect, but rookies have always been at or near the top.
2: Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how collectibles has really shot up in terms of an alternative investment product, especially since the pandemic, because that was when people really started to have time to go into their attics. And I'm looking at Michael Barr here as I'm saying this (laughs) um, to look for the cards that they may have collected in their youth and, and decide, you know, maybe it's time to see how much they're worth.
1: Yeah. I mean, the pandemic, without a doubt, was a defining moment, a defining event for our industry. You had people that had time. You had people that were looking for distraction. You had people that had money that they were not spending on discretionary things like travel or going out to eat. And they gravitated to this part of their life that brought them joy many years ago for a lot of these people. And there was a sector of people that were coming in, that were looking at it as, as an investment. What is going on in the market? What can we control? What can we not control? You know who's pretty safe bet? Babe Ruth. We know exactly what he's done. Mm-hmm. We know his values baked in. And uh, and they came in and they came in by droves and they they really spent a lot of money. And we've seen some ebbs and flows, but here we are coming up on four years since the start of the pandemic and the market's been very resilient and, and continued to grow.
5: Brian, I remember a few years ago, my son was on social media. And he was watching a bunch of kids open old baseball card packs. And I don't know about you. And I mean, like, I didn't think that was a thing, but apparently that has absolutely blown up. Talk to me about that. How has that changed the landscape for your business, for sports memorabilia and collectibles? I mean, apparently it's been a huge boon to uh, to the business.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you say uh, right there, social media and watching people open these things. I mean, it's created a community in a way that uh, didn't always exist for for a long time you had to go to card shows and you had to travel and leave your home to interface with people that liked what you liked or were interested in what you were interested in. Now you've got thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people who in the comfort of their home have the accessibility that uh, allows them to build this community and, and spread information and exchange information and learn and and grow, grow this industry.
5: Have you ever heard or seen of somebody open up a baseball pack like that and find that card that will allow them to live on Michael Barr's private island down in the Caribbean?
0: A <laughs> oh, rookie Damien
3: Sassauer
5: <laughs> <Sysour> card!
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, personal history. About five years ago, I bought into a box opening of a 1986 Fleer basketball box, and I was lucky enough to receive the pack in which a Michael Jordan rookie card wow. was. And it graded a nine out of 10 grading and authentication paramount in our industry. So that was a big hit for me. That was a multiple of my investment. And, uh, you know, that's what draws people the allure of getting that that desired card, that chase card, that key rookie. And so we we love to see people get into the hobby however they arrive here. And we just hope that they stay and uh, and learn more about all the fun and exciting elements of it.
0: In the late 80s, early 90s. Now, here's the problem with that. I didn't even open the box said, okay, if I don't open this box, this is going to be good. The problem is there was pretty much nobody good in it. And the market was overwhelmed and, you know, tops and clear and all those guys realized, you know what, we can make a lot of money. We just sell it like this. Am I wrong
1: in thinking like that? No. I mean, the 1980s definitely marked a power shift where the manufacturers realized that they were, frankly, leaving money on the table. And so if you look at the production numbers from the 80s and 90s through the roof, and uh, you know, even though packs were the most expensive they'd ever been at $1 in 1989, people couldn't get enough of them. And so what we've seen is as the supply and the glut of product really grew, uh, we saw people gravitate back towards vintage, and and vintage is an area that we specialize here at Robert Edward Auctions. Those old cards, of which there are not many, of which they're not making more of, there's a special something about those, and that's what we've seen long-term has the price history, has the the data of what's happening, good times and bad, and gives people the confidence to look at them as that alternative investment, in addition to just straight out enjoying them,
2: what about the more modern players, the the players that are in the headlines post nineteen sixties or even today? I'm thinking Patrick Mahomes, uh, Shohei Otani.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- those guys are are dominating the headlines. They're dominating their their fields and their courts, and in our hobby, they're the biggest names going. You know, and I think the jury's still out on what long term the. The guys like Otani or Trout or or some of the basketball players will do value wise, mm-hmm. but they're they're drawing in droves of droves of young kids who idolize these players. And again, that's exciting. I don't collect today what I collected when I was a kid. So we love to see people coming into the hobby from all angles. We love that there's new product being made. We love that the card companies are getting exciting and, and adventurous with some of the product that they're, they're putting out. And, uh, you know, we just want people to have fun doing what they do. And if you can make a little money, then that's a bonus. So, so Brian, let me ask you this. You've got Damien Sasso's
5: 2016 Bloomberg rookie card. And then you have... <laughs> (laughs) Damien Sassauer's 2016 Bloomberg Rookie card, but it's signed by Damien Sassauer. Which one's worth more?
1: You know, that's actually a dynamic that's shifted as well. It used to be blasphemous to put a signature on a card. And nowadays we're seeing incredible premiums being paid for cards that are signed. Um, Either modern cards that come out of the pack signed or vintage cards that are signed by the players and, and maybe noted with some career statistics or or you know rookie of the year highlights, et cetera. So there's been a big, big bump in price and interest for signed cards compared to what we were seeing even five or 10 years ago.
2: What about jerseys that are signed or baseball bats that are signed? I, I know that people collect them. They're worth a lot. They put them behind glass cases, but is there a market for actually – Trading these items?
1: Yeah, I mean game use memorabilia is a sector of our market that's really taken off in the last several years. As we saw this incredible escalation in pricing around cards of all types, we saw people look and say, you know what, for for not much different of a price i can actually get something that this player used or wore and so with the modern guys we're having a signed bat or jersey is available i think that many collectors would prefer that but you know we last uh this past summer sold a babe ruth baseball bat for 1.32 million dollars wow. so it doesn't have to be signed but if it's available collectors won't won't turn away
0: this is the story that always breaks me up not just those cards that are, you know, rookie cards and this and that, but the blooper card. And I always think of the Bill Ripken card. <laughs> I can't repeat what's on the end of his bat, but that card is worth something. And it, you know what I'm talking about.
1: I do, I do, and I've never been bleeped in an interview, and I won't start now. But uh, it's it's a great card, and yeah, to your point, people like these error cards. They like the eccentric cards, and they like the things that are unusual. And and going back even into the 19th century, there's instances of cards that weren't supposed to get out there, and uh, they did. And collectors pay a big premium, and and that's that's exciting, and that's goes back to the ubiquity of social media. I mean, there are people that are opening up boxes today, discovering errors that people don't know about. They're sharing them and they're creating interest. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, 1910, we sold one of the most famous error cards ever. There's only 10 of them known. The printer changed the plate on the Joe Doyle card, had the wrong team. Only 10 of them got out of the factory. We got $1.32 million for one. Wow. So maybe we'll be talking about Billy Ripken being a million dollar card here <laughs> soon. Our thanks to
5: Robert Edward Auctions, President Brian Dwyer for joining us. Up next, we bring in former Coastal Carolina head coach and former TD Ameritrade chairman Joe Moglia. You're listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.
0: This is Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This
2: is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu here with Damian Sassauer. Michael Barr will be back next week.
5: With the college football's championship game coming up on Monday, we wanted to take a look at the state of the game.
2: The NCAA itself is in flux, with conference alignments shifting and the emergence of NIL.
5: To talk us through some of the big headlines is former head football coach at Coastal Carolina and former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade, Joe Moglia. Joe,
4: welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Damian and Scarlett, thank you very much for having me back on. I've enjoyed it every time we have done this.
2: We'd love to hear that, Joe. And thank you for coming on. (laughs) Happy New Year to you. You recently (laughs) wrote an op-ed for Sportico on this idea of players' unions in college. So walk us through the thinking here and whether we're you know close to that idea or not.
4: There isn't any question, especially as far as the Power Five goes, that this is a matter of money. The conferences do their own TV negotiations. They're responsible for their own revenues. They don't need the NCAA. And plus, if you go back two and a half years or so when they were announcing NIL, to me, that's the most significant thing to happen in the history of college sports. The NCAA literally abdicated their responsibility. I, I thought that was First, mind boggling. And secondly, I think that's maybe the worst example of leadership I've ever seen in my lifetime. <laughs> the organization is supposed to protect the student athletes, protect college athletics, do all those things. Biggest thing going on, they're gone. Okay, so the money is so significant. And I think the impact that the NCAA can really truly have, other than being an enforcer, Power Five is not going to do anything that they don't want to do, no matter what the NCAA is saying, etc. So therefore, it's really been run by the agents and the attorneys. Mm-hmm. And there was talk. I, I think it was, I think it was at Dartmouth uh, recently. I think a few years ago it was Northwestern about literally unionized. That's Dartmouth and Northwestern as the money's getting more significant. I can easily imagine players getting together. They, they know what the money is. They know what the money's like. They know what other people are getting paid and say, you know, if we don't get this much of a bonus and we don't do this and this, we're not playing in a bowl game or we're not playing in the championship game. Now, you say, well, that never happened. Well, you know what? <laughs> Look at how many guys on the team at Florida State didn't play in the game. So I I can easily yeah. see from a business perspective that the people that are influential, the agents, the lawyers, et cetera, not the NCAA, mm-hmm. you know, able to, to able to to bring the athletes together because, frankly, it's in the best financial interest. Nine out of ten athletes are going to. Behave in a way that's in their best financial interest,
5: Joe. You, for our audience, you have to explain what is the role of a players' union. You know what do they do? I mean, they obviously it's like they contract on a minimum wage for players to play
4: at, but what else do they do? Well, you know, I think their job, you know, the basic job is to protect the players. So, with regards to benefits, with regards to medical protection after you stop playing, with regards to making sure that free agency is, is, is actually allowed and encouraged to happen. So they're supposed to operate on the best interest of the players. So, for example, if. uh, What about uh, laying claim
5: to 10 percent of the TV rights?
4: (laughs) I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Again, there's nobody able to stop this. Nobody. What you could have done when it was announced a couple of years ago, you could have had structure around. You could have guidelines. You could have rules. You have something that everybody would kind of coordinate around. There was nobody. You remember? I don't expect you to remember having been there, but you know, about 40 years ago, SMU had some recruiting violations, and they got the death penalty for three years. Like they weren't able to have Scott. Yeah, no, so I remember that. Recent. Sure. Okay. The, you think about what Reggie Bush, Reggie Bush in 2005. You know, he was getting some money, doing all those things. And I'm not saying what he, what he did was right because that was, there was a, those were the rules. They break the rules. Everything that Reggie Bush did, totally legal today. Everything that SMU did, totally legal today. I mean, this it, it, it wasn't even a conversation about what's supposed to happen. So at least we had the transfer rule that if you were going to transfer, okay, but you got to sit out of here. So, so if I'm going to give you money, I got to recognize you're not going to do anything for a year. If I'm going to leave, hey, I got to recognize I'm going to sit out of here. Right. The NCAA was nowhere to be found, but they get rid of the transfer rule. Then what happened? Three weeks ago, the transfer rule was you can leave, period, anytime you want to a play. Now, I'm sure there's more detail around that. And then three weeks ago, because there was a couple of things going on with regard to the courts, in their wisdom, the NCAA says, OK, we're going to get rid of the second time. So if you transfer once, you play right away. Transfer a second time, you got to sit out of here. Uh-uh, that's gone. I mean, it's the wild, wild west.
2: It is the wild, wild west, and they're making it up as they go along here. What would players' unions do to the economics of coaching? Because a lot of these coaches are the big stars uh, within the school and within for their community.
4: Yeah, you know what? I think when we talk about players' union, and ha- I should think that through more, more thoughtfully, Scarlett, the players don't have that type of stuff. So uh, them coming together, they're the players. They're the mm-hmm. players. You got you know, a gazillion of them playing every, every game. As far as the coaches go, the coaches, at least nine out of 10 of them, have agents. All the big ones have agents. And the type of coaches coaching contracts that they're getting are very, very significant. I don't think, not that they wouldn't, but I don't know if the coaches feel they need unionization. I think they're pretty comfortable and happy where it is. Now, I think what we need to look at- How did they deal with a unionized workforce, though? Well, the NFL deals with a unionized workforce. And if you're the coach, you're still the coach. Now, you recognize there are always rules and guidelines around you, whether they come from the NCAA, the NFL, whatever it is. But these are still your players. And if they're going to perform, you're the one that decides whether or not they can play. You're still in control of them. I don't mean control in a better way as far Mm -hmm. as the actual football goes. So uh, if you think the guys are probably you don't play them. Yeah, but Joe, I just want to. The guy's not playing. Let me me just take you through this. This not to command the biggest salary.
5: I'm sorry. I was gonna say, let me take you through this hypothetical Joe. I mean, the truth of the matter is this is very different than the NFL because in the NFL, once you're on a team, you've signed a contract and you work for that team, you can't just transfer out next year and play mm-hmm. for another team, right? So there are you're pros and cons the, to it. And if you have I'm yeah, just Damien, yeah. Damien, so I understand. Are you talking about the player or the coach now? From the player's perspective, my question for you is okay. you know, what does that look like? I mean, for, for you to unionize as players, right? And, you know, to try and negotiate, say, a minimum wage, you know, as for your rookie contract for any university there has to be a little bit of give there for, from the university's perspective right we're going to pay you a salary we expect you to be here next year <laughs> you know what i'm saying we can't just expect to yeah. pay you for one year service and then you run off and become a free agent and go to the next best thing
4: i, to- I, I totally agree so yeah, do you think way, this is a way thing?
5: to lock players into their specific um universities which as you rightly point out in that florida state georgia game is something
4: it seems we desperately need here I agree. In fact, I actually think that because college athletics does has no clue what they're doing from a serious financial <laughs> perspective. It's embarrassing. Uh, that's why you have these. I, I agree. The Orange content. Bowl was a complete embarrassment. For three years dollars. I agree
5: with you. The Orange Bowl was a complete embarrassment. Imagine the sponsor for that event, you know, and all of a sudden that's what they got. That's what they paid for. I mean, there's real money on the line here, Joe. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no,
4: I agree. I believe, especially with the coaches, I can easily see it with regard to players that college power 5 at least at least that should model uh, sh- should use the NFL as their model and that would accomplish some of the things that you're talking about now and that would be a good thing because there's no guidelines if the NFL was doing what college football's doing they'd be out of business
2: so going forward, I mean, how does Charlie Baker proceed? Because he's made the proposal here of perhaps paying the players. But as you mentioned, doing that would open up Pandora's box, essentially. If you were Charlie Baker, what would you what would be your first step? How do you kind of contain the, the damage?
4: I have spoken to Charlie Baker about this. And one of the things that I suggested the first few weeks in the job was, Take a leadership role. Right now, the position, it's an important position, it's prestigious, and it pays some pretty good money. But it has very, very minimum power over for Power by football. So, uh, one of the things we talked about was by the way, you think it was an, ac- it was, uh, it was an accident that they brought in a guy who's a lifetime politician <laughs> that can work with Congress that kind of settles everybody down, makes everybody happy? But that's usually not a major decision maker. All right. So, anyway, with regard to in terms of really running something, So at the end of the day, and I recognize you in the state of Massachusetts, I I give him his due on that. But my suggestion was, why not take a leadership role as a politician? Don't you look down the road and kind of see, see what the landscape looks like and then start to make decisions based on that landscape so you can get reelected? Well, the answer to that is yes. Well, why don't you look down the road as far as college football? I guarantee you, do I know, but I bet a lot, I know, but I bet a lot that there's going to be power five separated from everybody else. So why don't you, instead of trying to hold on to them for dear life, why don't you come up with something? Will you actually recommend that they break away, actually give them a model that shows genuine leadership to and operating in the best interest of the schools as opposed to the NCAA's best interest? And uh, that should give them some real credibility. With regard to all the other sports, remember you've got basketball, you've got FBS. Then you put your arms around that, and you make it very clear that going forward, here are the rules, here are the guidelines. We're going to enforce. We're going to treat everybody the same. I was going to ask if you could, for our audience, I mean, one of the things
5: that you know in, in your amazing uh, piece in Sportico that you you mentioned is the um, is the lawsuit, the 4.2 billion dollar class action suit. Right, um, Judge Claudia Wilkin ruled that lawsuits against the NCAA and college athletics conferences, including the Power Five could proceed as a class action. What does this mean for NIL and for the players and the
4: universities writ large? I think, again, Monday kind of drives everything. If the class action suit has a major, remember, those things don't necessarily happen and they get negotiated down, et cetera. But if that turns out to have a significant impact on the respective colleges, universities or or groups, you know, that's going to have an impact. But we don't know what's going to happen with that. And these things take a long time.
5: So and and then off the back of that I guess the question I would have is you know we all we're talking about obviously power five football a lot because that's going to drive NIL it's going to drive how really all college athletes get paid but let's talk about some of those other uh those other sports yes. you know those lesser known ones right like lacrosse for example and you know some of those athletes who you know want to probably be a part of you know of the party but but really can't be so. You know, do you believe if you were going to have unions that these unions would be by each sport? Would they be like for all athletes? You know, regardless of what sport they play, would they be for you know boys versus girls? I mean, what are your thoughts there?
4: About a month after they announced NIL, they had the Division One College Athletic Director Conference. They think they have every year, every other year in Dallas. I was invited to that, and I was allowed to sit in on all their transitional meetings. They had a transitional committee, you know, as we move forward, how are we going to transition, and I to do all those things. And every time somebody would come up with a good idea, and I was just listening, and then somebody else in the room, first of all, have too many people on the committee, and then somebody else comes, oh, you can't do that because that's going to be a problem for girls' soccer. Oh, you can't do that because that's going to be an issue for God. Oh, you can't do that because of this. You can't do that for most committees, and definitely academia is like this, the great leaders find a way to figure it out. They don't just accept no all the time. So I was the closing uh, keynote speaker then, and my job was to talk about what what's my unfiltered perspective <laughs> of college <laughs> athletics today. And I actually went to some of the more senior athletics and I said, hey, you guys really want me to do this? No fooling around? Yeah, yeah, we really want to hear what you got to say. All right. He down, I didn't believe that. So it's very, 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 very uh, complimentary. But then I said, let's talk about what's going on. Yeah. And I said, you should break away from the NCAA right now. You know, Mark Emmett should be fired right now. Uh, and I said, I sat in your meetings and you come up with some great ideas, but then you have one obstacle and one no, somebody something else, and you're blaming everything on legal and all these things. I said, You can't you'll never handle the whole mishmash of college athletics and every sport. So begin with the one that matters the most, which right now has the most money. It's by far, very mm-hmm. close, it's power five football. So take a look at power five football. I'm suggesting you you control this, but you break away power five football from the NCAA, and then you have an independent outside executive committee that you hire, right, and that you pay. They have one rule, one, one job. Your job is to take care of college power five football. That's it. But whatever they say goes. They can fire them if they think they're bad. But as long as they're in office, whatever they say goes. That's it. Sure. They are true, true, absolute rulers, CEOs, and then you'll be able to figure that out for Power 5 football. You move it to the side, then go to Group of 5 football, or you go to Men's Bet. You
2: start small. But you start with what you can control, Power 5 football, and then you take it from there. Joe, really, really appreciate your joining us. A very opinionated Joe Mowgli, of course, the former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade, former head football coach at Coastal Carolina, who recently penned an op-ed on college athletics for Sportico. And if you missed any of that conversation, find it now on the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, subscribe now on apple spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts thanks for listening to the bloomberg business of sports show we're here each and every week at the same time for Damien Sassour. i'm scarlett foo tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports you're listening to the bloomberg business of sports from bloomberg radio around the world
0: what could you do if your data was working for you